Please be seated. Uh, Tinika will do announcements a bit later on, but uh, not only is today Mother's Day, today is Daniel Avenel's birthday. And um, I should, should have uh, waited before I hit the record button. Uh, but yeah, Daniel's birthday today. Uh, Jenny's away, I'm pretty sure, doing on grandmother duty. They uh, rejoice at the birth of their grandchild during the week. Uh, there's a baby girl called Jane. Yep. So Daniel will be home alone, which is a bit sad on his birthday. So if you want to invite him over for lunch, take the hint. Um, and also know that his favourite thing in the world is sarsaparilla. Okay, being a true Queenslander. Anyway, I'll leave that one with you. And I also want to say thank you to those who've been praying for Mum following her heart attack back in February. Um, she's able to be at home. And, of course, um, that does mean lots of adjustments have happened for her. Um, one of the adjustments was an alarm that she has to wear around her neck all the time. And by the wonders of technology, do you know what a son can do? I can check on my phone to see whether she's wearing it. <laughs> and you imagine how much she likes that. The phone rings, Mum, you're not wearing your alarm. How do you know that, son? It's great fun. But it's also quite serious, because if mum doesn't wear the alarm, I mean, it's important that she remembers. Um, there's potentially a lot of st at stake if mum forgets, or should I say when mum forgets. Uh, we all have stories about remembering, don't we? Uh, when I was a child, all seven of us, yeah, we would walk to the bus stop and we'd arrive, and then dad would ask the fateful question of mum, did you turn the iron off, Anne? <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, of course we'd all look at mum in sheer terror and of course she would reply, yes, yes, I did turn the iron off. Except that one time. <laughs> when the house burned down. No, that's not true at all, I'm only joking. But we did have to trudge back home, the, you know, nearly a kilometre, back up the hill just to check. Uh, and you only do it once, won't you? Uh, we forget all sorts of important things. Now, who's wondering if they turn the iron off at home right now? Yeah. We forget keys. We forget keys. We forget to fill up. We forget the shopping list. Is that right? Yes. We forget bin nights. We forget birthdays. Or we choose to forget birthdays. Uh, anniversaries, the appointment, the important meeting... We, we're just forgetful. We fail to remember. Did you remember to pray this week? Yes. Did you remember to read Exodus this week? Yes. Wow, that's so encouraging. I'm encouraged by that. That's, that's wonderful. And did we remember last week, last Sunday morning, when we, when we remembered Israel, hopefully, Israel cried out in desperation to God because they were in slavery. And God heard their cry... And what did God do? As they cried out, he didn't come in and rescue them straight away. He just kept repeating his promises, didn't he? And today we're going to look at the rescue. And when God makes this rescue, he's going to make sure it is one to be remembered. The Bible reading we heard, it's just the TV guide, really. It's a preview of what comes in the next Oh, four or five chapters. We're going to chew off ten this morning. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. But firstly, to the plagues. So the snake eating the snakes, it's a preview of what's to come. Chapter 7, verse 
14. Uh, Bibles open, that'll be really helpful because we're going to move really quickly through Exodus. The Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. A stinky river, we know it too much. A plague is an act of judgment by God on Pharaoh for his refusal to listen to God. And some believe that he goes for the Nile first because they worship the Nile. They treated the, the river like it was a god. Uh, in this plague, God turns the Nile River into blood. Notice nobody seems to be hurt. It seems like a temporary inconvenience. Fish die, the river stinks, they have to dig for water. Verse 22, but the Egyptians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Uh, go figure. How that happens is beyond me. I have no idea. The Egyptians mimic, and Pharaoh doesn't care too much. It's a bit like the snakes, isn't it? Plague number two, chapter eight, is the frogs. Seven days later, and again, verse 7, the magicians are able to copy Pharaoh, uh, copy Aaron because more frogs is exactly what Egypt needs right now, isn't it? Can you imagine that? All the frogs. And then the magicians go, we can do that. Bing! And they're like, oh, what are you thinking? We don't need more frogs. It's crazy. Notice how early uh, Pharaoh's response is as he relents. As he cries out to God in verse 8. I find that striking. The second plague, and he's conceding something. To the, he's conceding to the power of God. Of course, no sooner do the frogs disappear in verse 15. As the frogs disappear, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's conviction disappears. He changes his mind. Plague number 3. See, we're moving quick. The plague of the gnats, whatever they are, little tiny insects, go with that. Maybe they're fleas, who knows. Verse 16, chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land Egypt of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. Gets you feeling itchy. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Dun, dun, dun. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said, because Pharaoh is supposed to be God, remember? And see the conviction, no tricks but the hand of God. See that these first three plagues seem to be broad, they're indiscriminate, and they conclude with the magicians being outdone. God gets the points. 
God's snake eats their snake, so to speak. And in the next three plagues, God sends flies. He sends disease on livestock. Then he sends boils. And as we move into the next three plagues, the emphasis seems to shift to a distinction on the Egyptians who are impacted and the Israelites who are not impacted. Such is the finger of God. So if you turn to chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 6, same kind of thing. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock, uh, this is the livestock plague. Uh, All of the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Uh, The boils, chapter 9, verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. And so God is showing his power in a way that is not some natural disaster, because natural disasters are indiscriminate, aren't they? And this isn't some cheap magic trick. This is the hand of God. But Pharaoh still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it. Uh, This would be like... You know, me getting in the boxing ring with Jeff the Hornet Horn. You know him, the boxer? I would not last one round. And even that is an overstatement. I wouldn't even last a minute. I reckon he'd hit me once, and then they call the fight off. Uh, that's a rule, actually. Uh, uh, the umpires would call it a no contest. They would say this is a mismatch. It's actually dangerous, because that's how people get killed. And they would call it off. And we know how mismatches are nauseating in sport, aren't they? Like, uh, why bother? They won 100 nil. It's no spectacle to see. And this supposed contest between God and Pharaoh, we are to see this morning, it is a complete mismatch. It's a complete and utter mismatch. There's God... And then there's everything else a distant second. Now this is important for us this morning in our society, in our climate. We might feel like as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we're losing ground on all sorts of fronts. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion. We might feel buffeted and discouraged. But when we come to the book of Exodus, we see that God is bigger. God is bigger than all of that. God is bigger than your favourite political party or he's bigger than your least favourite political party, I should say. God is bigger than Qantas and Rugby Australia, let the listener understand. God is bigger than the spiritual realm and he's bigger than the devil and he's bigger than us. And Pharaoh places himself in direct confrontation with God and sometimes God's enemies seem to have the upper hand in the conflict you could read other passages Isaiah 14 and 28 or Daniel chapter 7 through to Daniel chapter 12 the entire book of Revelation 
tells us there have been and there will be many such people like the pharaohs of this world that persecute the people of God and they seem to get away with it. But we need to remember they will not prevail. The God of all the earth has a purpose dominated by blessing and fruitfulness and his abiding presence among his people. No matter what the world throws up, we can be sure of that. And so we don't need to be overwhelmed by the anti-God pharaohs of this age. Stop worrying about it. Pray about it, yeah. Don't be, you know. Our creator and our redeemer is for us. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Romans 8 says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. They're wonderful promises to hold on to. In 2020, our diocese is having a year of evangelism. And there's a word that fills people with fear, isn't it? Not the word diocese, the word evangelism. And we want to honour Christ. And if these chapters are true, then what do we have to fear? When we pray, when we petition God, with our fears or even in our tears, remember who God is. He's our creator and our redeemer who is completely for us. And the last three plagues, with everyone around Pharaoh, including his own officials, well, they start to get it. They begin to see who God is, but not Pharaoh. And so the next three plagues make us com- makes a complete and utter mockery of Pharaoh. Uh, it includes hail, chapter 9, I'm in now, verse, let's look at verse 14. This time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. There's the plan. And now because they're really, really becoming dangerous, notice God is giving warnings. You need to take cover. You've got no idea what's coming at you. So chapter 9, verse 19. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. Uh, the other plague is locusts. So the locusts appear in chapter 10, verse in chapter 10, and in verse 7, what is the result? Pharaoh's officials said to him, so it's the officials on view, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go, so they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realise that Egypt is ruined? And so there is the point in the last three plagues that we can see it, that the Egyptians can see it, Pharaoh's officials can see it, But Pharaoh cannot. Pharaoh doesn't get it that you cannot mess with God. And so plague number nine, the plague of darkness, look at Pharaoh's response in chapter 10, verse 28. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. 
The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Wow. Wow. Now, who is judging who here? It's incredible, isn't it? That Pharaoh, after all these apocalyptic-like events, Pharaoh still thinks he's calling the shots. And he thinks he's still dishing out orders. Can you imagine Adam and Eve in the garden? And God meets out his judgment. And he says, you've got to leave. I'm going to curse the ground and all that. And then Adam and Eve say to God, you know, we think you need to leave now. Do you think that's going to happen? That's how ridiculous it is. It is completely and utterly delusional that Pharaoh should be barking orders at this point. And so we see his pride and his obstinance. You don't get to order God around. You do not set the terms and you don't get to ignore God like that. And so there's one more plague to come and it's called the Passover. And I'm sure many of us have heard it, heard of the Passover. There might be some here today that haven't. And the Passover, I've got to say, is harrowing. And we might ask, if we know the story, we might ask, well, how, how could God do this with the angel and the boys and all that? How are we to explain this to non-believers, even to each other? And one answer might be, well, we could contrast it with chapter 1, when the Egyptians were killing the Israelite baby boys. And so, you know, what goes around comes around. Here is the justice. We should have cried, justice, please, God, in chapter 1. And yet when it finally appears in chapter 11, the plague on the firstborn, well, we're still unsettled, aren't we? We are still unsettled. We ask for justice, but when it comes, we go, I'm not sure about it. Also, here's another thing worth thinking about. Does it matter that God gradually showed Pharaoh what he was up against? I mean, this isn't the first plague. This is plague number 10, I think it is. Would anyone disagree that Pharaoh has been given every chance? Nine plagues. Is God right to allow evil to go on forever? Isn't there a time when God says, you know, enough is enough? And so this last plague is also an act of God's judgment. Uh, We think of this story as a rescue from Egypt, yes, But don't miss this aspect of being rescued from God acting in judgment on the evil of this nation. It's described briefly in chapter 12, verse 29. We're going to jump over. Here it comes, two verses. At midnight, the Lord, chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. And the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house with someone dead. Two verses. It's not much, is it? But it's powerful and it's potent. But have a look at chapter 13 and then flick back to the beginning of chapter 12 and chapter 11, you can see how many verses, so much space given to remembering. Three chapters of detail about remembering and celebrating and commemorating. 
See, why is there two verses on the plague of the firstborn, but three chapters on these formalities of remembering? It's, it might be because God wants you to remember. He wants God's people, he wants his people to remember that when his destroying angel came and took out the firstborn children, his people who trusted him were passed over. And these chapters, chapter 11, 12, 13, are all about how Israel are to remember this night, this massive event. And so on the actual night of the rescue, before it happens, each family needs to slaughter a lamb and they take some of the blood from the lamb and they put the blood on the front door of their homes and then that night they shelter inside from God's judgment. And when God's judgment comes, he passes over the houses with the blood on the door frames. And that's why it's called Passover. God's judgment passes over his people. Without the blood of the lamb, there is only death. And we know who that points forward to, I think. And of course, God could have done it any way he likes. But he does it this way so his people would remember and celebrate the Passover. They would remember their God and know their God. And so each year they would kill a lamb, retell the story of their rescue, and they needed to remember. All right, chapter 12, verse 17. Here they are remembering. Celebrate the festival of the unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Chapter 13, verse 3. Then the people said to the, Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Or verse 14. In the days to come, when your son asks you, What does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is something to be remembered. That God is powerful, just as we've seen. And that God is gracious in his salvation. That God is a loving and redeeming God. And we are not to forget that. But the tragedy is, of course, that the Israelites don't even make it to the first Passover before they forget. God has done the most incredible rescue in the Old Testament. This is a history-defying moment, and yet at the first sign of trouble, they panic. And so in chapter 14, verse 5, Pharaoh changes his mind, he gets his army together, takes off after Israel, and when Israel sees Pharaoh coming, how do they respond? How do you think they respond? Verse 10, chapter 14, get a load of it. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Wow. See, is this the response of people that know God and trust God or is this the response of people that have already forgotten? 
I mean, did you see what they said? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They've forgotten already. God has demonstrated his power. This is a mismatch, remember. Yet at the first sign of trouble, Israel are complaining. In chapter 15, uh, at the end of chapter 15, they're complaining. At the beginning of chapter 16, they're complaining. Chapter 16, verse 2, In the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died in the Lord's, by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate the, all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What did they say? They think they were eating pots of meat in Egypt? They were slaves. They were being kicked from pillar to post by the Egyptians. They were crying out to God for help. Are these people deluded now? And this is what happens when you forget God and his love and his kindness. You complain and you grumble and you think that the grass is greener on the other side. When we're under stress or under pressure, how easy, how fickle are humans. And we might feel like telling the Israelites, you know what, you just need to get over it. You could say that. We might say to them, you know, don't you remember where you've come from and what God has done for you? Why can't you trust him? Why are you grumbling? How many signs and wonders do you need? And then we should ask, as we think about the Israelites like that, we should ask, well, are we any different? Because there's one rescue in the Bible that's bigger than the Exodus. Do you remember it? It's the rescue that Jesus achieved on the cross. It's a rescue that should fill us with confidence that God is powerful, that not only did he defeat Satan, but he raised Jesus from the dead. And it's a rescue that should humble us, that God would seek to save people like us. And if after you've been rescued like that, you find yourself grumbling and whinging, then might I say there's something wrong? If you're a Christian and your life is characterised by discontent and grumbling and complaining, there's something wrong. I mean, there's a long list of things we might complain about. We might complain about not being noticed. Or we might complain about uh, feeling the burden of doing everything because no one else is doing anything. Or you might complain about your husband or your children, or your church leaders even, or your church family. And the response is, well, like Israel, have we forgotten where we've come from? Have we forgotten that we are the redeemed people of God? That we've been rescued? And that God in his love has showed himself to us in such a way that it should fill us with gladness and joy and thanksgiving, delight. It is good for us to remember afresh the gospel and to soak it up and to breathe it in. It is good tonic for us, for our souls to remember our God who is powerful. And it's good for us to be sharing this good news around our dinner tables and in our community 
to be doing the work of reaching out. Because God wants to be known and he wants to be glorified. And so he calls us to remember. Through Jesus, he has defeated our enemy. And so there's nothing we need to worry about or be afraid of. Our God is a rescuing God. Through Jesus, he has given us a fresh start, a new life, sin forgiven. And remembering that daily, remembering it constantly, remembering what Jesus has done for us on the cross, well, that is something that should change everything. And so the encouragement is to remember the gospel and God's grace to us in Jesus. Should we do that on Mother's Day? Yeah, we should. We should remember our mums. But our mums need the gospel too. They need to be reminded. We all need to be encouraged by the good news, such that it's ever-present in our mind and in our heart, that we remember God's rescue, his power. We remember where we've come from. So let's encourage one another by our remembrance. Amen.